Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Prison Terminal, The Last Days of Private Jack Hall is a moving cinema verite documentary that breaks through the walls of one of America's oldest maximum security prisons to tell the story of the final months in the life of a terminally ill prisoner, Jack Hall, and the hospice volunteers, they themselves prisoners, who care for him. Prison Terminal and The Last Days of Jack Hall draws on the from footage shot over a six-month period behind the walls of the Iowa State Penitentiary and provides a fascinating and often poignant account how the hospice experience can profoundly touch even the forsaken lives of the incarcerated. We're joined today by the director, producer, and I believe cinematographer for an Academy Award-nominated documentary in the short form, um, and that would be Edgar Behrens. Edgar, welcome to Film School. Thank you, Mike. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for being here, and I uh, want to congratulate you on uh, the film for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is humanizing for people the this very, very real issue of uh, the hundreds of thousands of people that are now um, elderly who are in our prisons across the country who will die in our prisons when, when at a point when the, when they're absolutely no threat to society. You've done a, a great job here of allowing us to see the humanity uh, of a lot of people who are behind bars, and I appreciate you uh, you're doing that. Tell me a little bit about how you came to this story and uh, prompted you to do a documentary on it. Well, it, it goes back a while. I um, I lived in New York City, and I worked for the Open Society Institute, and they were getting ready. This is back in the 90s. And they were getting ready to do a conference, um, uh, the first conference on death and dying in prisons and jails. And while it does not sound like a sexy topic, back then they thought this was something that was bubbling up and it was going to be a problem down the road. Um, so I did a short film for them, a, kind of a nuts and bolts, how to set up a prison hospice. And we shot down in Louisiana. Um, Angola, Louisiana is the prison we shot at. And uh, if you know anything about prison history, Angola is probably one of the worst prisons in the country. Yeah. But for them to have a progressive hospice program for their terminally ill prisoners was something pretty outstanding. So we went down there. I shot for a couple weeks and produced a short film that we eventually sent out to hundreds of correctional facilities across the country. And I think we did jumpstart a, a handful of prison hospice programs um, with that short film. Um, but as a filmmaker, I, I felt like I shortchanged the inmates down there because we were only there for two weeks. Mm-hmm. We got to know them, but not as in-depth as I wanted to. So I always had this burning desire to do something much more in-depth. Um, so we fast forward 10 years or so, and I, was, I moved back to Chicago, and I heard about this uh, uh, prison hospice in Iowa that they had just started up. It was kind of small, uh, two beds out of a 12-bed infirmary. And I, I paid them a visit, and I said, uh, I asked them if I could stay there for up to a year. I was wondering if I could, you know, I wanted to do a much more in-depth um, documentary about the same, same subject. Mm-hmm. Well, unbeknownst to me, they actually were using my first film as a teaching tool in their hospice. So um, 
I went there already with uh, a foot in the door, and uh, they allowed me uh, access to the prison, the entire prison, for 24, you know, 24 hours a day for up to a year. And uh, I was there for six months, and um, I documented the program there. But also, my, my desire was to humanize the inmates who were not only the hospice volunteers, but also the, the prisoners who were dying in this hospice program. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, and, you know, the fact that the Iowa State Penitentiary uh, allowed me in there, um, you know, around the clock for up to a year is a first, and I, my hat's off to them for, for trusting me uh, and allowing me to film this program. And, you know, and that's a great point. Uh, that is one of, I know it's a major issue for uh, prisoner advocates, is that access uh, to prisoners is so tightly restricted in much of the country, here in California particularly bad, um, and and for and also for press to get in and to be able to actually talk to these guys and get a you know another side of prison life is very very difficult. So you're right. Hats off to to Iowa, the state prison system, for allowing you at this kind of level of access. Yeah, yeah. It, it was ama- it was amazing, and I had to pinch myself every day really to, to you know because it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And uh, and you know it didn't take long for me to know that uh, this was absolutely a unique situation that. Uh, to allow a filmmaker in there with a camera, and I could roam around and shoot whatever I wanted to, within reason, you know, and lo- as, as long as I was safe and there was, I wasn't shooting something that was going to, you know, put me or anyone else in harm, was pretty much a, it, a, it was a first. Um, no. And you know, uh, going back to the issue, I mean, this issue of uh, the the uh, prisoners dying in prison, um, it's huge, and because of our harsh sentencing, it's just it, and and people are staying in there longer and longer. It's an issue that's just going to get worse and worse. Yeah, and 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 in in uh, reading up on on the film, um, what we would qualify uh, on the outside of prison as aged aged uh, is a lot different than when you're in prison, based on the just the idea of the stress level, the con- work, the conditions, the lack of access to quality health care. Fifty is considered beginning. Uh, to be elderly in prison isn't that is that basically the 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 yard marker for uh, for that? Yeah, pretty much because they factor in the, the you know that you probably led a life that you weren't really getting medical attention while you're uh, on the street, um, and they factor that into the stress of just surviving day to day in prison. Yeah, um, yeah. So fifty is like the the marker for for elderly, which is a little you know I'm I'm fifty three, so I didn't realize I was elderly, but <laughs> it's a little shocking, but. The truth is, yeah, prison life is absolutely stressful, and these guys live on the average seven years less than most people on the outside. That's yeah. what I read recently. Well, now, how did you um, how did you come to know um, Private Jack Hall? Tell me a little bit about his backstory. What and what landed him in prison, and and well, how you got to know him. Well, um, when I uh, was allowed to go into the um, Iowa State Penitentiary. Um, the infirmary was, um, it's a 12-bed infirmary. Two of those beds were dedicated to hospice uh, patients. For the first two months of my stay in there, nobody was in hospice, which isn't completely uh, odd. Um, so that gave me the opportunity to first get to know everyone who works in the hospice, you know, from the doctors to the nurses to the prisoners mm-hmm. and to the correctional officers. So they got used to me being there. First month, I did not take my camera out, and I just usually bond with people. And I was in there for, you know, 12 to 15 hours a day, um, every day. So eventually everyone got used to me, and slowly I brought out the camera. 
Jack happened to be one of the long-term patients in this infirmary. Um, most infirmaries, I think, in prisons are turning into nursing homes where, like, the old and the feeble prisoners who aren't capable of taking care of themselves in the general population get assigned. And Jack had been in this infirmary for, oh, for almost 10 years. He suffered, you know, heart problems, and he became so weak that they said, you know, he can't be out can't have a cell of his own, he's going to be in this infirmary. So Jack was one of these long-term patients that I, I got to know while I was there. But everyone told me, you know, Jack is, um, he has these little relapses, but he usually comes back strong. And, you know, he, even though he's in his 80s, he's a strong, strong guy. Yeah. So two months into my stay, um, Jack's got double pneumonia, and it looked like he may be the next hospice patient. So I... Um, you know, we st- I, I started talking to Jack before before that he got ill, and he knew what the film was about. So I proposed to him that uh, if I could follow him through the whole trajectory of being a hospice patient in this prison hospice program, and he said absolutely. Yeah. Um, what landed Jack in jail was the murder of an alleged drug dealer. Jack's son um, was became a drug addict and eventually killed himself. So in Jack's eyes, any drug dealer is the enemy. So Jack took it upon himself to, you know, murder this one um, drug dealer in the town of Keokuk, and that basically landed him in prison. Um, mm-hmm. Jack was a World War II veteran. Right. He came back from the war after three years of pretty much hand-to-hand combat. He was a trained ranger. So he yeah. came back. Um, in my eyes, and many people that see the film, he came back as damaged as, you know, many men came back from World War II. Right. And uh, I think he just, um, he's kind of spiraled into alcoholism and, um, and into a kind of a life of crime, taking care of things that probably shouldn't be taken care of in that way, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you, you touch on that in, in a very moving way, hearing his own words, describing as he came back, you know, for two and a half, three years, it was kill, kill, kill. That was all he knew. That's what he was trained to do. And then to come back into uh, a society that obviously does not live by that sort of um, uh, code and to be thrown into these situations. And what we now know uh, from today, from the wars that we are fighting today, the post-traumatic stress disorder certainly would have been uh, uh, something that w- would have needed to be addressed by for virtually hundreds of thousands of returning soldiers, what was not. It was considered something less than manly to even talk about it, and uh, that whole generation of not talking about these things um, damaged them dramatically and, and horribly in, in ways that we the ripple effect is we're, we're feeling even today. Oh, yeah, and, you know, Jack, I mean, this is in footage that's not included in the final film, but Jack said, you know, like everyone else, he got a package of uh, cigarettes, like a carton of Lucky Strikes and some, and 50 bucks, and told to forget everything he did in the last three years. Yeah. And, yeah. and while he was a decorated war hero, he was given the key to Keokuk, and he was celebrated uh, upon his homecoming. You know, after a while, he fell through the cracks, and uh, and I think, and to, you know, to the very dying day on his deathbed, he still had uh, vivid dreams of his time in World War II. Yeah. He would wake up in cold sweats or screaming, and uh, I mean that never left him. Yeah. So he had to like self-medicate with alcohol, and yeah. you know, it, 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 you know, the film is about prison hospice, but 
And I was fortunate to have Jack, uh, you know, just by happenstance. I didn't pick him out of a lineup to focus on him because he had a fantastic story or his story was better than somebody else's. But, like, looking back, I was very fortunate to not only have him accept me being there through his entire pro- dying process, but the fact that he has this uh, back backstory about, you know, our our military and, and how we treat our our military folks when they come back. Now, I know, I think we're doing better now, but when you when you hear about how many people are committing suicide on a daily basis yeah. now because of Afghanistan or Iraq, it's just pretty, it's pretty frightening. Yeah. Well, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with uh, Edgar Behrens, the, uh, the Academy Award-nominated film for Best Documentary in a Short Form. It's called Prison Terminal, The Last Days of Private Jack Hall. Uh, and just a wonderful film, and uh, the reviews have been stellar across the board. Uh, uh, often being picked out of the uh, of the batch of uh, f- short documentaries that uh, they're saying is a very good chance of uh, taking home the statue. And uh, good luck. I don't want to jinx you by even saying that out loud. I shouldn't have even brought that up. But I, you know, it is a wonderful film um, in in so many ways. And we're just touching on some of the some of these things. The not only is Jack himself a very sympathetic character in the in or person in the film but the the people who provide the hospice care um and i think i I think it's okay to frame this in a way that jack grew up in an era and a time and a place where uh, bigotry and uh intolerance was uh more the norm than it was not and uh, in the film um we see him being cared for in his last days by a number of African-American uh, prisoners, which is not unusual since the majority of prisoners in our system is are African-Americans. But tell me a little bit about the, the, that part of it, the hospice being, uh, being people being cared for in hospice by prisoners and by how you saw Jack and his reaction and his relationship with those caregivers. Okay, great. That's a great question. Um, I'm just going to back up a little bit for statistical reasons. Uh, like, there are uh, roughly 1,800 correctional facilities in the country. Um, 2.5 million people are incarcerated in the United States. Of those correctional facilities, only 75 have working hospice programs. Mm-hmm. And of those 75, only 20 or so use the inmate as a hospice uh, volunteer. So they actually they're actively involved in running the hospice program and in administering um, compassion care. So Iowa is one of 20 who uh, they just they took it upon themselves to incorporate the prisoner into the whole program, which I have to say is probably the best thing. Uh, uh, it's a great model to follow because um, because with the prisoner integrated into the workings of the hospice, the the mystery of the infirmary is is uh, you know because. Let's face it, these guys see a lot of their friends go into the infirmary, and a lot of them never come back. Right. Not because there's some shenanigans in there, but, you know, something. They find out that someone has colon cancer, he gets sent off, and they never see him again. So it starts the rumor mill. Um, but And so with, with the prisoner involved in hospice and seeing the day-to-day routine of the infirmary, these rumors are dispelled. Plus... Like Jack was taken out into the yard in a wheelchair by Herky, one of the inmate volunteers, and people could see his gradual decline. So it wasn't like Jack was vibrant at one moment and then he disappeared. So 
these are all like weird um, ripples, positive ripple effects of a hospice program that incorporates the prisoner into the, the, the machinations of, of hospice care. Um, yeah, when I, when I uh, was filming Jack and realized that three of his uh, caretakers were African-American, I thought, well, maybe this might be a, an issue. This might, be, this might look like, I don't know, it might look lopsided or something. There are white men involved in the hospice program, but it just so happened that um, these guys, Herky Glove and Love, were kind of the next guys in line for, for uh, to be hospice volunteers. And, you know, the, the patient can also request, um, say, like, you know, it would be great if Herky was here with me and stuff like that. And to have Jack request, um, you know, yeah. after his checkered past of being, let's face it, a racist, to request uh, the companionship of his buddies who happened to be African-American was a huge, huge uh, transition for him. I'm not saying it happened just in hospice. It probably happened years earlier because yeah. they've been friends, you know, for 20-plus years in the prison. Um, but it was, it was, it's not necessarily unique in the sense that a lot of the caretakers are African-American. Well, again, by percentage, the likelihood, of you know, because of the prison population breakdown across the country, state level, federal level, doesn't matter, the preponderance, the, the, the majority of prisoners are African-American. And I want to name them, by the way. Bertram R. Burkett, and he's Herky. Michael Glover, known as Glove. And I don't have the information on Love. What, what's, his, what's his name? Edward Love. Edward Love. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should have remembered that. Uh, but, yeah, he was in for kidnapping. He's, uh, it's a life sentence in Iowa yeah. for uh, kidnapping, so he was also a lifer. Yeah, all of them. And, and again, I mean, the, the, they obviously ha- are invested in, in this process, invested in what they're doing. And, and yeah, you couldn't help but see uh, the, the companionship and the, the, um, between Herky and, uh, and Jack Hall. It's a pretty moving oh. part of the film. Um, one thing, Mike, I should also um, talk about is the, the the director of nursing who set up this program, yeah. Um, yeah. Marilyn Sales. Thank you. She was a dynamo, and um, without her input, uh, and without her just basically saying, "I'm starting a hospice program," it, nothing like this would have happened. Yeah. And and uh, she and she took it upon herself to incorporate the prisoner because in her her um, mind, and it actually works out absolutely perfectly. Um, if you get the prisoners to invest in the program, they are going to make sure that nothing bad happens in that program. They're going to check each other, and before anything gets out of control, um, they're going to check it. And because yeah. it's in their interest to keep this hospice program running, since they're lifers, they're eventually going to use the same program for, for when they pass away. So they have this invested interest in making this program work, and it is kind of a self-policing program. Mm-hmm. Um, Truth is, without Maryland, this program would not have, uh, have gone up, uh, you know, been established. Um, but the, the one thing that I do want to say, and it's not in the film, is that these programs are actually very fragile. And that's one reason why I made this, uh, yeah. this film, because I wanted to hopefully standardize uh, this hospice program across the country. Because while I was filming, uh, Maryland was uh, getting ready to retire, and... All the guys were very crestfallen to hear that she was going to leave, and I and they started um, issuing transfers to other prisons. And I was like, "Why are you going to break up this program? I mean, why are you going to leave?" And they said, "Look, we've seen programs, great programs, come and go just because someone retires or someone gets transferred. So uh, they knew like the, the the program was probably going to become a shadow of what it was. So you know, they're all these programs are all fragile. It all depends on the, if the wardens." 
compassionate and open-minded. It depends on, you know, the, yeah. the, the staff, if they're going to stick around. It's just, they're very fragile. Okay. I, I don't know if that's a, that is an important point, I think. Well, then that's obviously the, the fact that it's been an Academy Award-nominated uh, film it will help raise the profile of these of these programs. We, I just hate to do this, but we've just kind of run out of time, Edgar. Uh, I want to I I want to let our uh, let our listeners know that uh, it uh, the documentary short forms are are opening up today uh, in the area. Lemley Royal the- uh, Theater is playing is 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 running the these Oscar nominated short documentaries. It's also going to be screening at HBO on March 31st uh, at 9 p.m. on HBO. HBO has been a big supporter, a big pr- a part of the production of. Uh, prison terminal, the last days of uh, Private Jack Hall, and to them, thank you. Um, and yeah, well, that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, and thank you so much for being here. It's been it really has been a, a, an honor to have you on. Uh, uh, this this I can't say enough about this issue and mandatory sentencing and just this kind of crazy kind of uh, uh, meat grinder of a of a prison system that we have in this country. It's uh, it's pretty pretty awful in some ways. Many ways. Well, Mike, thanks for having me on your show. I was I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. And again, we've been speaking with uh, director, producer, and cinematographer Edgar Barons. The the show, the show, the film is called uh, Prison Terminal: The Last Days of Private Jack Hall. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.